The second scripture lesson is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as not so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. For as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now, I know only in part when I will fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. The, the word of God. Let us pray briefly. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and redeemer. I want to say that it is an honor and a privilege to preach today's sermon on the Sunday of the, the MLK holiday. And I especially uh, want to thank Pastor Ann and to thank all of you uh, for, uh, for, for, for coming out on this uh, bitterly cold January day. When it comes to the, the, the writings and the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr., what often comes up is, I have a dream, 
delivered during the, the 1963 March on Washington or letter from a Birmingham jail. What I find in preparing for the sermon is that That, being, that, that, that they were important in the canon of the work of uh, MLK, they, I find that they, they barely scratched the surface of, 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 of who he was and what he stood for. I also find that, now I've read through a, a few, few other of his writings and, and to li listen to uh, uh, a few of his speeches I, on, and on, on YouTube. And what, what I find is his writings and sermons are not exactly simple and straightforward. He often employs employed a lot of biblical, historical, and uh, philosophical metaphors and an allegory to what to provide context to the to to uh, the, uh, the the struggle of of that time. So for this sermon, I've, what, I've, what I've done is I'm going to present two condensed versions of, 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 of Dr. King's uh, sermons. The first is Paul's letter to the, to the American Christians, which he, a sermon he delivered six years prior to uh, I Have a Dream. And then segue into where do we go from here? And that's the, the, the title of the sermon that he delivered before the Southern Christian Leadership Conference four years after I Have a Dream in a March on Washington. Now, Dr. King delivered Paul's letter sermon on November 4th, 1956 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Approximately a year after the Montgomery bus boycott shaped precedents for the civil rights movement that, that evolved in, 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 in the, uh, the years that followed. Here, he lays out his philosophy of nonviolence based on Matthew, the scripture of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, and lays out a challenge of responsibility to the Christian community. Now here, he's speaking within the context of that time to the Dexter Avenue congregation. Also, he's speak, speaking uh, in the, the, the modern context as if he's ad addressing the congregation here at Fort Street. And he says, I would like to share with you an imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The postmark reveals that it comes from the city of Ephesus. After opening the letter, 
I discovered that it was written in Greek rather than English. At the top of the first page was this request. Please read to your congregation as soon as possible and then pass on to the other churches. For several weeks, I worked assiduously with the translation. At times, it has been difficult, but now I think I have deciphered its true meaning. May I hasten to say that if in presenting this letter, the content sounds strangely Kingian instead of Paulinian, attributed to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. It is miraculous indeed that the Apostle Paul should be writing a letter to you and to me merely 1900 years after his last letter appeared in the New Testament. How is this possible? Is something of an enigma wrapped in mystery? The most important thing, however, is that I can imagine the, the Apostle Paul writing a letter to American Christians in this modern age. And here is the letter as it stands before me. I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, who are in America, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For many years, I have longed to be able to come to see you. I have heard so much of you and of what you are doing. I have heard of the fascinating and astounding technological, social, and scientific progress you, you, have, you have made. However, it seems to me that your moral progress continues to lag behind. Your poet, Thoreau, David, Henry David Thoreau used to talk about improved means to an improved end. How often this is true. You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. Through your technological and scientific genius, you have made of the world a neighborhood. But through your moral and spiritual genius, you have failed to make it a brotherhood, or rather, a, a, just, a just, true, and inclusive community. Let me rush on to say something about the church. I must remind you, as I have said to many others, that the church is the body of Christ. So when the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. But I am disturbed about what you are doing to the body of Christ. They tell me that in America, you have much, that you have within Protestantism, more than 256 denominations. The tragedy is not so much that you have such a multiplicity of denominations, but that most of them are warring against each other with the claim of absolute truth. 
this narrow sectarianism is destroying the unity of the body of Christ. You must come to see that God is neither a Baptist nor a Methodist, an Episcopalian nor a Presbyterian. God is bigger than all of these denominations. If you are to be true witnesses for Christ, you must come to realize that America. I understand that there are Christians among you who try to justify segregation on the basis of the Bible. They argue that black people are inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Oh, my friends, this is blasphemy. This is against everything that the Christian religion stands for. I must say to you, as I have said to many Christians before, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Moreover, I must reiterate the words that I uttered on Mars Hill. God that made the world and all things therein hath made one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. So I urge you to get rid of every aspect of segregation. The broad universalism standing at the center of the gospel makes both the theory and practice of segregation morally unjustifiable. Segregation is a blatant denial of unity which we all have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. The segregator regulates the segregated to the status of a thing rather than elevate him to the status of a person. Now, at this point, this is where Dr. King speaks metaphorically of the first scripture reading. May I say just a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil? Always be sure you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of being bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat him or humiliate him, or even pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as yourself. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards.
I must bring my writing to a close now. Timothy is waiting to deliver this letter and I must take leave for another church. But just before leaving, I must say to you, as I have said to the church at Corinth, that I believe that love is the most durable power in the world. I think I have discovered the highest good. It is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. Now, you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may give great gifts to charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. But if you have not love, it means nothing. Without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. So the greatest of all these virtues is love. It is here that we find the true meaning of the Christian faith. Now, I'm gonna fast forward approximately 10 and a half years after Dr. King uh, delivered Paul's letter to the Christians to a sermon where he poses the question, where do we go from here? Now, now this sermon he delivered on August 16th, 1967, before the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, this is less than a month after the, the riot, or rather, rebellion and uprising in, in Detroit. And this transition, it, it's, well, it's what started as a struggle for decency and dignity in the context of Jim Crow segregation evolved into a struggle for full equality and inclusion in the context of de facto segregation and systemic racism. In an NBC interview around that time, Dr. King alluded that his dream the one he so eloquently framed during the 1963 March on Washington had turned into a nightmare and understood that the optimism of that message and moment must be tempered with realism. In this sermon, he lays out a challenge to, to continue to the work and the quest for restorative justice. We must massively assert our dignity and worth. We must stand up amid a system that still oppresses us and develop an unassailable and majestic sense of values, a revolution of values to address racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. These are three evils, these three evils are intertwined and you cannot eradicate one and neglect the other. The problem of power is it's often historically framed as a confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to preserving the status quo. Now probably understood is 
Now, now, now power, properly understood, is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. However, so often we have problems with power. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as polar opposites. So that love is defined with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. Now, we've got to get this thing right. What we need is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice is, is at its best as love correcting everything that stands against love. This is what we must realize as we move towards the goal of restorative and inclusive justice. Now, at this point, Dr. King, he metaphorically channels the, the scripture, well, the second scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 13. And so I say to you today, my friends, that you may be able to speak with the tongues of men and angels. You may have the eloquence of articulate speech, but if you have not love, it means nothing. Yes, you may have the gift of prophecy. You may have the gift of scientific prediction and understand the behavior of molecules. You may break into the storehouse of nature and bring forth many new insights. Yes, you may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you have all knowledge. And you may boast of your great institutions of learning and boundless extent of your degrees. But if you have not love, all of these mean absolutely nothing. You may even give your goods to feed the poor. You may bestow great gifts to charity and you may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr. And your, and your Spilt blood may be a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn. But if you have not love, your blood was spilt in vain. What I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that a person may be self-centered in their self-denial and self-righteous in their self-sacrifice. Generosity may feed their ego and piety may feed their pride. So without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. And so I conclude by saying today that we have a task. That is, devote and commit ourselves to restorative justice and inclusion and continue to work to transform our community and nation. And as we continued 
as we continue our charted course, may we gain consolation from the words so nobly left by James Weldon Johnson. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when a hope, when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place where our fathers sighed. We have come over a way that with tears that have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last, where the bright gleam of our bright star is cast. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. It will give us courage to face the uncertainties of the future. More importantly, let us remember the power of God and the love of Christ. These are creative forces in the universe working to pull down that, uh, these gigantic mountains of evil. Combined, it is a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. This is what we must be mindful of as we leave this place and move forward in faith and service. Amen.